and welcome to EQ's podcast and our Without Boundaries series. Here, we share ideas and practical solutions for how regulated business can make positive change. In this episode, we explore what customer vulnerability means today and how businesses can provide appropriate support. We hope you enjoy listening. Good morning, I'm Martin Kisby. I'm from Equinity Credit Services. I'm joined today by Nikki Osborne from M&G. Hey everyone. Uh, so yeah, I'm Nikki. Um, I work at M&G PLC. We're a savings and investments company with around 5 million retail customers, um, of which EQ helps service and support um, a number of those. So it's great to be here today. We're going to be discussing customer vulnerability, uh, some of the challenges in the marketplace and across the different regulators, um, and look at really how firms are, are coping with the new influx in vulnerability and, uh, and the coping mechanisms. The first question really, Nikki, is there's a, there's a term being banded around, which is customer vulnerability, um, but it's customer vulnerability or there is a vulnerable customer. What would be your views on which, which term is the best to be using? Oh, it's a, a big topic at the moment, isn't it? In, in the vulnerable customer world, what do we call vulnerable customers? Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting. I think the term vulnerable customers is obviously, it's been around for a little while now. Um, I think it has a helpful place when we're talking about the topic internally and with colleagues, you know, um, rather than customers directly. Um, I think people know what that means. However, I think it inhibits our thinking. I like to think about um, the term vulnerable customers as quite reactive, it's quite labelling. So I think if we think about a vulnerable customer, we're very much pinpointing and almost pointing at the customer to say, yeah. you are this situation. And I think we all have had conversations around, you know, how would it feel if I was determined or deemed vulnerable? It's not something you know, any of us particularly want to be classed as. However, if we um, think about it as customer vulnerability and flip it on its head a little bit I feel that it's a very um, much more a proactive way of looking at the topic um, you know vulnerability comes in all shapes and guises as I'm sure we all appreciate um, but we can't really change most of those drivers so if we think about a customer who's sadly experiencing cancer or somebody who has maybe limited literacy skills there's only so much we can do as organizations to just to fix or you know to support those scenarios what we can do is prevent the harm that might come on the back of them yeah. and so I think if we think about customer vulnerability it's almost putting us into that consequence space as opposed to the cause and I think that's where firms can really make the difference. Yeah I think that's some really good points um, you know I think adaptability and proactivity uh, obviously uh, are buzzwords at the moment with the FCA they're, they're wanting themselves to be a, a proactive regulator but I also think that translates a lot into uh, into the financial services markets as well. You know, businesses have to become adaptable to customer situations. They have to be proactive in recognising. Um, how do you think firms should approach that uh, that process in being more proactive? Do you think there are certain things that need to happen to, to enable them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the shift that we've seen um, over the last few years is that move from operational reactiveness to organisational proactiveness. And what I mean by that is I think frontline teams are filled with people and agents and advisors who are generally speaking quite people orientated. They want yeah. to do what they can to help their customers and their clients. What we what we have is opportunity to think broader. And I think that's where opportunities for firms uh, lies. 
for firms to become more proactive, I think we've got to think more than just the frontline teams. I think we've got yeah. to think about, you know, the service design teams or the proposition and product development teams and think about how do we help those colleagues realise the impact that they can have on the end consumer. And with that, not just thinking about, you know, the end consumer or the vulnerable customer as one entity. That's really not helpful. Yeah. Go back to that whole piece around the labels that we use. I think if we can help bring to life common circumstances the most common vulnerabilities the drivers that we see in in different organizations and how that might manifest in terms of behaviors and harms we can then help colleagues in these variety of roles to sort of bring it into their day-to-day working and i think that's when it becomes more proactive we we build it into our ways of working as opposed to reacting when we need to to situations that come up excellent i think um certainly knowledge and education plays a big part in, in identifying customer vulnerability, you know, having having the education piece from front end right through to your back end agent is vitally important. You know, having someone that can recognise what customer vulnerability looks like and what the different drivers are through each each stage of the product development is obviously going to be key to to building that adaptable product and and helping that customer move forward with their journey. Um, where do you think technology sits with that? There's, there's an awful lot of, of information out there at the moment, you know, open finance, open banking, being able to predict customer propensity to pay modeling. Um, how do you think that sits within that journey as well? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think technology is becoming more and more into the conversation around vulnerability. I think there's a part to play, but I think we have to be very mindful about that part. Um, I'll start with the concerns, caveats first. Um, I think we all realise and hope most have realised that vulnerability is is very fluid and I think if we are too if we're not very careful we'll focus on those labels and not think about the context around those circumstances so an example that I'll bring to life is a personal one I I have a a hearing impairment called tinnitus uh, which means I have a ringing in my ear Um, thankfully my ringing is is quite mild and it's quite it doesn't really impact my day-to-day life but if I was labelled as having tinnitus, there might be an um, inappropriate stereotype that I have a massive hearing issue and yeah. I don't. However, some people with tinnitus do have that really, really badly. And that means they might need a different um, servicing experience than, than myself. So I think we have to be mindful that things like all these drivers have a, have a range. So and the data can tell you so much. So I think that's the nervousness I have around data is, is how much of the picture is it really telling us? Yeah. So I think we have to maybe use it as one input, but then have further mitigating questions, actions that can make sure we truly understand the circumstance, not just the driver of the vulnerability, because yeah. these things do come on a range and they do vary every day. Um, that being said, technology is one and it's always growing and doing more amazing things every day so I think there is absolutely a space for that I think open banking is something that really interests me I think particularly in a in a fraud and scam awareness piece as well so being able to prevent and support customers um, at risk of those sort of situations Um, and then equally like you say in terms of the collections environment people who may be struggling to pay getting in early and and, and having those interactions and um, interventions to prevent further and worsening harm I think that's definitely an opportunity but I think it has to be done in the right way I think framing is really really important we've got to be careful about big brother and you know how that's positioned um but there is opportunity for it there was a really interesting um paper done a few years ago by Barclays um and that was 
looking at um, how customers would use, how they felt about data being used um, on them to yeah. talk about vulnerability. And actually, it was quite positive. There was obviously some caveats, but it was really interesting to see that there is absolutely an opportunity for firms to use it, but it has to be done in the right way. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think there's always been a nervousness over data sharing from, from a consumer perspective. Um, certainly because they don't understand how that data is going to be used and where that data can go. Uh, you know, you, you see it all the time, you, you, your mobile rings and it's a number you don't recognise and it's just a, it's a company trying to sell you insurance or asking if you've had a claim in the last five years. And often that data comes from uh, marketing preferences and, and customers not having an understanding of opt-in, opt-out selections. Um, and I think that comes back to open banking as well. You know, people have been have been stung with it so many times and, and their data being utilised that they, they are nervous to share bank account information and access to that whole banking uh, aspect of seeing what they're spending on a daily basis, etc. So I think turning back to one of the opening points, education of the consumer is really important uh, when it comes to data sharing and utilising technology. Um, especially if, if we're wanting to be able to identify that customer vulnerability early as well, they need to understand that it's going to be a benefit for them. I think it's that classic what's in it for me message. Yes. So, you know, if you're asking someone to do it, do something, no matter who that is, in this situation it's a customer, there's generally got to be some motivation behind that. So, you know, the word sale is, you know, a negative connotation, but you've got to sell the benefit to them, hasn't, yeah. haven't you? You know, Absolutely. by giving me this, I can help you with that. And I think that's that can be done, but it does require time uh, and good framing to be done effectively. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, a couple of things we're seeing from our clients in credit services um, from, from a lending perspective is looking at this digital journey as well and trying to digitize most of the online journey for a customer so the customer doesn't have to interact. And I think there are some pitfalls with that. Um, obviously, first of all, um, we've got nearly 9 million people who can't access the internet in the UK. So how, how can they manage that online online presence? It, it just doesn't work for them. you know. And then of, of people who can access, you've then got circa 2.7 million who have an issue interpreting the information. So don't have the technical savvy to be able to, you know, to migrate the information correctly and, and, and deviate through what they need to do. Um, where do you think that sits in terms of, you know, helping a customer journey through effectively uh, and managing that situation? Yeah, I think digital migration, digital adoption is a, is a really interesting subject. I think there are different ways it can be tackled depending on the nature of the firm so I think if you are you know a startup and you're going digital only then of course the education of getting customers online is not necessarily as critical perhaps yep. however what is really important in a digital only experience is, is that firms do absolutely need to make sure they can identify vulnerable customers and support them appropriately and I think part of that is about you know you use the word education now I think that's a really good word to use I think it's about letting customers know why it's important to have that two-way dialogue and to talk to their, their their lenders or their their service providers about situations that are affecting them because then we can adapt and, and support them appropriately so i think yeah. that has to be done even if it is digital only i think for organizations that are more um more legacy organizations that have sort of that complex background multiple servicing sort of channels 
I think moving online is obviously a shift that most organisations are going into. But I think it has to be done mindfully, knowing your base. So the FCA and their guidance do talk about knowing the scale and nature of vulnerability in your organisation. I think that's a really good starting point for any firm around vulnerability. You know, think about your base. Are they particularly of a demographic that isn't going to be digitally savvy or not online? Like you say, those figures are much higher than I think people realise still. And, and if that's the case and you, there is a desire to go online, we need to make sure there are sort of mitigations around that. So yeah. having multiple channels available to customers still is really, really important, I believe. And there's opportunities, obviously, to educate and help people to get online um, and then help people even through call centers you know if a customer calls up to do a transaction rather than just saying you know oh you can do that online go away and do it actually taking the time to talk that customer through the registration process to talk the customer through how to do that interaction it obviously takes time in that initial interaction with the customer that aht is going to be longer but actually the long-term benefit of that digital sort of self-serve benefit demand reduction is obviously longer for the for the benefit company can see so i think there's um, a long-term view that needs to be taken to that adoption not just sort of a short-term focus yeah yeah i completely agree i think an interesting point you you raised during, during that conversation there was about the fca um, wanting firms to be able to identify their their customer uh, vulnerable customer base, uh, and and understanding how much of their uh, their portfolio could potentially be vulnerable, um, and I think certainly from my experiences is firms still have a very narrow view of, of, of customer vulnerability. Um, obviously, they deal with you know mental health ones, they deal with the, the illness, and they deal with the shock vulnerability, um, and they understand. That there are those those pigeonholes, if you like, of, of customer vulnerability. Uh, what they don't look at, in my experience, is some of the digital disadvantaged customers, are the ones who have the learning difficulties um, and may not have the ability to understand or interpret the information correctly. Um, and really, for me, there has to be a, a shift in in trying to help those customers and understand that customer base, because they're the ones that are more likely to to breach some kind of terms and conditions or breach some kind of agreement because they didn't fully understand what they were signing up to. So again, it comes down to education, uh, but it also comes down to knowing your customer base. 100%. I think it's so true. I think um, something we've been talking about a lot at M&G is is how do we understand that scale of nature? So I think I like to look at it as a bit cliche, but as an iceberg. So I think a lot of firms historically have focused on the scale of nature of the the customers who have contacted them so yeah. just using that sort of oh, our customers spoken to us and we've done they've, they've told us they've got a hearing impairment or they've told us that they're going through some financial difficulties that of course is an indicator as to the scale nature in your base but it is only those who have articulated or demonstrated a vulnerability and of, of those who you know it's those who have contacted you you've got all those customers who haven't contacted you all those customers who haven't articulated those, those disabilities or vulnerabilities the example i often bring to life is um it's dementia. So at M&G, we have yeah. an older base in some of our um, products. And, you know, customers don't come on the phone and go, hi, I've got dementia. That's not something they, they do. No. But equally, we know from, you know, statistics and medical science that one in 14 people over the age of 65 will have some form of dementia. So we have to be mindful of that. And I think you're absolutely right there. We've got to be thinking about the, the unspoken vulnerabilities. So whether that is about literacy skills or, you know, health situations that customers don't articulate and, and come to, to, to light with I think we've got to think about that particularly in that 
proactive service design piece. I think, you know, yeah. making sure that comms are written in the best possible way so that the key messages really land, not just, yeah. a, you know, written on a page, but really are digested from a customer point of view. They really get what they mean. Yeah, I think the legislation's got to uh, got to support that as well. Um, you know, the Consumer Credit Act at the moment is full of English that you wouldn't normally see in everyday life, I think is the best way to put it. Um, and certainly from the statutory documentation piece that you have to issue customers. Some of that documentation, that they, they, they will understand, unless you're in, in the sector and you're dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis or you're very educated in the financial services, the likelihood is that you're not going to be able to fully interpret a lot of that documentation that comes to you. So more has to be done from that end. You know, a full revamp of that Consumer Credit Act needs to be done to make sure that there is uh, an, an appreciation for people who have low literacy skills. You know, make it plain English, I think, is, is what we need to do. Have you seen any, uh, any examples of good practice uh, in, in the market space? Yeah, I think comms is a, is a really interesting one. And I think um, there is absolutely some great work being done and started in that. I think there, are, there is an understandable concern from organisations and firms to ensure they're regulation, regulated compliant in their communications. So yeah. whether it's the, the credit act you mentioned or other uh, regulations and legislation we have to follow, but equally, there's also this piece around vulnerability and making sure customers understand that message. And I think yeah. we, you know, we forget how easily it is for, you know, even the best of us to be bamboozled with too much information, information overload. You know, it's it's easy to forget key messages. And there's just like you say, there's phrases that we don't use on a day to day basis. Um, I've only been in financial services for a little over two and a half years um, and I came from a different industry. And I remember the first few months working in, in financial services and the word annuity was being bounded around. And I was like, what? what's an annuity? And I, I realised, obviously, after a bit of time, it was, you know, it's the product you get after your pension. But I've always referred to that as, the, as your pension, yeah. because that's how, you know, the day to day person talks about it with their friends and family. Um, and I think we forget sometimes the language you use internally. You know, I think we think of jargon as just abbreviations but it's so much more than that there's there's so much more to jargon and um, in terms of great examples i think one thing that brings uh, comes to light is um, comes to sort of mind is monzo um they've done a, an amazing couple of pieces that um, i'm really um, intrigued and impressed by so they've done a whole tone of voice um, activity which is available to the public and you can go on the website and have a look at that it talks about how they write and um, i think they use it almost on a day-to-day -day basis for even their internal comms by the sound of it, but it's it's fantastic. And then they have rewritten, I think it's a terms and conditions. Yeah. Um, and I, if I recall, um, it was 1500 words long or something along those lines. And um, the reading age was extremely low. So yeah. that hopefully you are sort of designing for that, I don't particularly like the phrase, but lowest common denominator. So you mm. are ensuring that, you know, it benefits everybody to speak, you know, in a way that is more simple. Um, so yeah, I think Monzo is definitely doing some great work in that space. I think the, the regulator is trying as well. You know, the, the FCA has always been one to try to avoid jargon in your communications to make sure it's clear, transparent communications, um, which is great. You know, I think that is, is exactly what you need to do. Like you say, um, try, try to target that lowest common denominator of customer who, who is going to potentially struggle with the understanding of, of, of what could be an overtly um, difficult comms to receive, uh, you know, if it's a debt collection comms, for example. Um, so having that in clear, you know, a clear, transparent document makes it a lot easier to 
identify but also give confidence to that customer that they can call and they can speak to someone who's going to be empathetic towards their their circumstance like we said before i think it's just it's it's bringing the other legislation and the other statutory notices and the other other pieces that have to go with that up to speed to fall in line with that because at the minute it's contradictory you know you're issuing clear transparent comms from one regulator and then statutory documents are just overtly complex in 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 the nature so yeah, I completely agree. I think the other thing you mentioned there, which is is so important, and I think is starting to get real recognition now, is empathy. So I think historically mm. people think about empathy as just a nice to have almost. And yes. um, I heard a phrase the other day that let's stop calling it soft skills because there's nothing nothing soft and easy no. about about it. It's actually quite hard. And actually, we should call it human skills. And I really liked it. Um, so I've definitely started to use that in my uh, phrasing and description of it. But I think empathy goes such a long way and you know we talked about that what's in it for you messaging but that's part of it it's having that empathetic tone and being authentic in that as well yeah. and following through with it I think having you know a line on a comms and then you're calling up and having a very contradictory experience mm. then you lose trust and faith in, in that in that relationship with your provider it's got to follow through the end-to-end experience but empathy has got to be there throughout um, you know the end-to-end journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the internal, you know, internal training programs of firms are, are essential. You know, they have to be given the correct human skills, to use your term, to be able to, to conduct a call with that demographic of customer and be able to adapt to that situation. And they're difficult conversations to have. You know, you've got to be mindful that you've got an agent sat on the phone who could potentially be dealing with some very difficult situations. So, you know, the, the support mechanisms have to be there within the firm to be able to support those individuals as well as the customers. And I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I did a little bit, bit of debt collection back in the day myself, and I completely think that's one of, you know, it's a difficult environment for both the customer mm. and the colleague, absolutely. And I think we overlook that sometimes. I think there are a couple of things that I think need to be recognised there. I think the first thing is the environment in which our colleagues work. So the environment we put our people in will be the, the you know will produce the, the experience for our customers. So if they're being targeted on unhelpful measures like AHT, um, you know they're not going to have the time to explore and understand the customer situation. And without that exploration and understanding, you can't genuinely be empathetic um, and you're just rushing the call. And so I think there's an environment piece that has to be considered. And then absolutely, you're right in terms of recognising the the well-being of of our colleagues. I know it's something that EQ have done some amazing work on um, speaking to your teams over the last few few months. Um, And it's so important, you know, there are conversations and whether that's in a collections environment or a servicing environment you know colleagues will come across situations that are difficult to, yeah. and that'll be based on their own experiences you know you could just have a a, a colleague who's lost somebody to, to cancer perhaps um and you know a customer mentions that they're, they're experiencing that that's going to trigger an emotional response equally you're going to have people like bereavements teams who you know if that's something you're dealing with day in day out even if it's something you're quite used to there'll always be those conversations that hit home a little harder and it is so important that our teams have the support around them you know the ability to take some time off the phones to have a little walk around the office or the block you know depending on where you're working and then come back hopefully feeling a bit more refreshed and and also those sort of employee assistance programs that can have that extra external support um, if things are you know a bit more on the extreme side and you need a bit more extra support no, I completely agree. I think to uh, 
to touch on the point that you raised there about you know key performance indicators within the call center um you know i know a lot of firms have started to do away with those for that exact reason you know uh, conversational collections was a term that we used to utilize quite a lot and that is you know doing away with your old call transcripts and just getting to know your customer understanding their circumstances and you know that that's where your empathy comes from you can't you can't be empathetic if you've got a transcript to, to follow it's very difficult to marry the two uh, without going off piste so i think you know having having that ability to deal with a customer as an individual customer is really important but you know them coming off the phone there and if they if their kpis are you know then you've got wrap you've got a certain time frame to wrap up the call before you need to go on to the next one it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't help their mental situation as well you know if they've come off the phone from a, a particularly different difficult customer who you know maybe having some uh, really difficult times in terms of mental illness or something like that they're going to want to take time to process and like you say maybe maybe take themselves for a little a little break and a wander around but have that support mechanism there to be able to do that so i think that is really important yeah i think those measures are they have a place so i think we have to be mindful not to knee jerk because then people Mm. just end up going flipping flopping you know and a cyclical action which isn't helpful i think measures like aht you know rap they're all really important measures but I think the question is, should they be front and full place for our frontline teams? Yeah. My belief is no. I think that managers should have those as indicators around performance because they are the indicators. And then we should be using that to, to get curious. So if you're, you've got a colleague on the phone who is taking a really long time on the phones, it shouldn't be, oi, John, you're taking too long. It should be, John, how are you getting on? You know, I've listened to some calls. I can see that, you know, situation X, you know, you seem to be struggling in that scenario. Can I give you some coaching? And I think that's where AHT should be used. It should be about yeah. managers and coaches using it to get curious and give pointed feedback as opposed to agents worrying, oh, I'm hitting 420 seconds or whatever it's going to be yeah. to get this customer off the phone. Uh, I think it's very short term, as I mentioned earlier. I think, you know, you'll end up having a lower first contact resolution rate. Customers will call back. Your complaint rates will be higher you know and then the experiential things like churn and you know loyalty and value add they won't be as positive either so i think it is it's short term to, to focus on that i think you know thinking a bit more broad definitely provides both the customer and the business uh, the best return yeah no completely agree completely agree just uh, flipping uh, flipping the conversation a little bit uh, i just want to talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that come out over the last 12 to 18 months um, from the regulator and from the government to to help uh, with this customer vulnerability. Um, one of them is the uh, the debt breathing space moratorium that came into uh, in in May 2021. Um, do you think that initiatives like this are supportive for customers, um, or do they have the ability to be misused, therefore negating the actual benefit of them? Yeah, so I think it's um. Again, it goes back to that point around circumstances are so flexible and sort of personal. So I think these sort of tools can be really, really important. And it's almost like should should they should they need to exist almost? Firms should almost just have this in their toolkit already as an internal option for how they support customers. So it is obviously great that the, the regulators are supporting that and ensuring that it is commonplace. I think that's really, really great. 
Um, but I think we've also heard stories around the longer term impact for customers in terms of the breathing space then opening up further harm by um, exacerbating you know, the, the, the debt at the end of the situation or the end of the collections experience. So I think it has to be done mindfully and I think it has to be done with better understanding of the customer. You know, we've talked about that a few times, haven't we, on these, yeah, these points. You know, it's not knee jerking. It's not customer says I want this and we say yes that's fine I think we've got to understand okay let, let's have a look at that for you tell me more about your situation and, you know why is this why do you think this is the right thing for you and then explore options I think yeah. it's one of an option as opposed to the only sort of solution we should be providing customers um, and I think that's where we should be looking at things um, personally. Yeah I agree I think one of the things that we've seen certainly over the last 12 months is the lack of flexibility within the products to to be able to give forbearance to customers effectively um, obviously the covid pandemic uh, provided some respite for customers who needed it in terms of payment holidays one of the things that concerned concerned me certainly with the payment holidays was the understanding um, from customers of the impact of taking that payment holiday so what would it mean to the to the loan to the mortgage you know how how does that affect the interest extending the term etc i don't I don't feel that that was particularly well explained at the time. I get the feeling that I don't think it was a knee-jerk reaction by the government because something had to be done to support customers. But certainly, I think more information should have been provided to those consumers who were requesting the payment holidays because it was very simple. Uh, you know, we saw some of our clients. You know, a customer would email in saying they want a payment holiday, and it was granted. There was no no understanding, no questioning about you know, do you understand that this is going to impact? your interest rate is going to be compounded onto the end etc etc um, I think it's so important I think it, you know whether it comes from the government or whether it comes from firms that 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 you know we we are ultimately responsible for our products and services and, that, yeah. and that's where it has to be um, our responsibility to ensure customers are well informed um but I think that's you know whether that's part of the experience whether it's part of marketing even you know I think there was a lot of marketing around you know promoting what help could be given to people during the crisis which I think was absolutely the right thing to do um, but we need to make sure you know we let customers know absolutely those points that you, you raised there in terms of the consequence of those decisions yeah. they are the right decisions for some people they won't be the right decisions for others and the only way to realize that is through you know through informed decision making and I think that's yeah. absolutely key um, so yeah totally agree and I think that comes on to the the consultation that's in in the pipeline at the moment is a new consumer duty um, that the FCA released um, earlier this year, which is looking at um, it's looking more at the product and it's ensuring that the product is 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 provided in such a way that the consumer can make an informed decision. And and for me, it feels like there's a little bit more accountability being put on the customer to ensure that they're understanding the products that are being presented, um, which I think is fair. Um, you know, we talk a lot about firms having to do certain things in order to identify customer vulnerability, support customers, etc. There's got to be a stage where there's got to be some accountability on that cons end consumer to understand what they're getting themselves into. Um, but again, the product has to be given in such a way that provides them that information to do that. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting one, that whole personal accountability piece. Um, and I, I think that the consumer duty piece is an interesting one. I think um, it's got 
um, more clarification and um, sort of detail needed. I think that will come over the coming months, which I'm really interested to see how that evolves. Um, I think the iterations on the vulnerability guidance was was fantastic. So hopefully this will follow suit. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of that personal decision making, it is a really interesting one. I think one of the challenges that we've often toyed with, and I, I heard it at a conference a couple of years ago even um, with the FCA, was how far should firms go if a customer is adamant they want to do something but it's quite clear for people you know who have more like contextual understanding about the product or around the industry that that probably isn't the wisest thing to do how far can we push it and ultimately it's their their decision as a customer um and and yeah we have to be personally accountable of course what we need to have in place are those sort of safety nets um to protect customers who aren't of sound mind or capability um but you know i think as long as firms are making products that are simple enough to understand have communications that are easily understood by the everyday person not just their comms and proposition managers and then equally you know that these experiences that we're having be that digital or sort of more traditional we are identifying those vulnerabilities I think that's probably as far as we we can go I think ultimately we are you know we, we're humans we have free will and we can yeah. do what we want to um, yeah. but we need to make sure people are informed and have the opportunity um, and if they they decide that that's not something they want to to listen to or they that's not something they want to to do then then ultimately that is their decision um, as yeah. tough as that might be for us to accept no no I completely agree and um, you used a word in their experience uh, obviously, customer experience is is essential. Um, it's essential to retain customers and to promote new customers. Um, where do you think a customer experience or CX process and team sit within this whole uh, whole customer vulnerability aspect? Interesting one. So I've been in customer experience now for I think. 12 to 15 years um, and it's a topic that often comes up where should a customer experience team sit mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a question which I always come back to well, why do you have a customer experience team so if it's a customer experience team which is there to help you know make the operation slicker and to make efficiencies then they should be really linked into the operational teams if they're there to transform and innovate then perhaps more in a marketing or transformational team um equally you know your point that was more specific around vulnerability um so and that's an interesting one around how far firms want to go with the topic of vulnerability so obviously it's regulated and there is guidance which is is very detailed by the fca and i'm you know i think it's well written and, and a great starting point but I think the question that firms and organisations need to ask themselves is, is that as far as you want to go? Because if that's as far as you want to go, then it's more in the, um, you know, the compliance space, perhaps. Whereas if there is a desire to really push the boundary and be the best you can be because it is the right thing to do. And of course, you know, as I think we've talked about, you know, customer experience does provide commercial return then it can probably just sit in that wider customer experience function. I know that, you know, a lot of organisations now do have a customer experience team. And so, yeah, I think that that can sit in in the wider CX team um, and that will vary depending on the organisational strategy. Okay, thank you. Um, Final question from me. What additional challenges do you think is going to face the sector on a whole in the next six to 12 months when it comes to uh, customer vulnerability. Obviously, we're seeing the tail end of the pandemic um, in terms of the government uh, 
respite schemes, etc. Um, so, what do, you, what do you think are going to be the, the, the next challenges? Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting one. You know, if you asked me two years ago what would be the challenges for the next six months around vulnerability, <laughs> I don't think I'd have said pandemic. Um, so I think it would be interesting. I think obviously there's an economic um, element that we have to consider. Yeah. So far, it's not been at least as bad as I think some people maybe thought it would be yet. However, yeah. I think that might occur um, over the coming months and over the next couple of years. Obviously, there are um, some good schemes out there to support people, but I think something has to be wary about and, um, you know, employment rates and, you know, what that looks like for, for society, particularly in the UK. And then I think around vulnerability more generally, I think that's interesting. I think mental health is something that I think I am really pleased to have seen more recognition during the yeah. pandemic. I think that's probably one of the the positives, if I may, may use that word, that's come out of the pandemic is we've all realised how easily we can individually be affected by mental health. I think all of us have probably had one or two bad days over the last 18 months. So yeah. I think a recognition for mental health has been fantastic. I would like to see more firms working in that space over the coming, coming months and years. Yeah. Um, and of course, the FCA are getting more involved now. So, you know, the guidance was finished in February and within that, the FCA did say they'd start to work with firms and through their existing um, supervisory work, they would be having this vulnerability lens. So yeah. I think what we'll start to see now is the FCA, you know, talking about you know vulnerability when they are working with their firms and organisations and, and they'll be asking for evidence to say, what are you doing? And I think that's going to be the big shift at an organisational level, sorry, at a consumer level, but at an organisational level is there'll be an expectation, I think, for us to be able to produce plans, assessments yeah. and, and show that we're taking this seriously. So I think if firms aren't already working in this space and they, they probably should put some effort in it um, yeah. because I'd be very surprised if we don't start to see some interesting outcomes from the FCA over the coming months and year. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, it's been much appreciated. I think it's been some good discussion there um, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. It's been a pleasure, Martin. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the latest podcast from our Without Boundaries series. If any of the topics resonated with you today, do get in touch by emailing withoutboundaries at equinity.com or for more information, visit our website, equinity.com and check back soon for more podcasts.